Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Let's ask again the Lord's blessing. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you in the name of Christ Jesus, your son. Father, we humble ourselves before you, before your word. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would make your word alive, that you would quicken in us understanding. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would call this, cause the skies to, to be rent and the ground to shake, and, and that, Lord, you would do great and deep and powerful things in our lives. We confess, Lord, too often our hearts are dull. We confess too often our minds are distracted. We confess, O oh Lord, that too often we are focused on the things of this world. And we have left off focusing on you. Correct those things, we pray. Turn our hearts to you afresh. Turn our eyes to you. Open our ears. Draw us near. Bless us, Father, by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, most of us have been spending a good part of this week, maybe more than we're willing to admit, taking in the Olympics in Beijing. We've been pulling for our countries or watching our favorite sports, and we have been mourning with those who have, who have not reached their goal and perhaps celebrating with others who have. Now, one of the interesting things about the Beijing Olympics this year is its theme. I've heard a lot of sports themes in my day. I'm a, I'm a recovering athlete. I'm a has-been in my own mind. The older I get, the better I was. <laughs> I've heard a lot of themes. So when I was growing up, we took the theme from a, a football college, a college with a great football team in the United States, and the theme which posted over the clubhouse door was, it takes a little more to be a champion. So each time we ran out of the clubhouse, we would tap that little sign as a reminder that we would leave it all out on the field. Another slogan you may sometimes hear. One of my favorite themes was with this program called the Wide World of Sports. I don't know if any of you were... We'll see that some years ago. It's a sports show that shows sort of sports around the world. And, and they would show these athletes in the pinnacle of victory, some of them in deep despair. And the theme was the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And when they talk about the agony of defeat, there was this one poor soul who was, who was uh, a ski jumper who somehow missed the ramp and just had the most terrible fall. I hate to be remembered as that guy. The agony of defeat. There are all kinds of sports themes that we, we think about and we celebrate. So it's interesting to me that at the Beijing Olympics, this year's theme was one world, one dream. It's an interesting choice for, for a sporting event. One world, one dream seems to speak 
more of a certain kind of cultural and political and philosophical aspiration than it does about the excellence of competitive sports. One world, one dream. One world seems to speak of a kind of unity, which increasingly in our day and age is another word for a kind of pluralism, a kind of idea of accepting all things and all ideas as though all ideas were equal. It confuses the fact that, yes, all people are equal, but not all ideas are equal. It's a kind of pluralism that rejects absolutes, that rejects um, truth. It rejects our ability to know the truth. And so in, in the world of much of the culture, the, 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 the aspiration for one, one world comes at the expense of one truth. One world, one dream. Well, what's left to us if we reject the truth? Escapism. Dreaming. If we run from reality, all that's left is a fantasy, a dream, a misty illusion, a silhouette of reality, but not the reality itself. I think this theme for the Beijing Olympics is a perfect thing if what we want to do is describe the mood of mankind in most places in the world today. Man is not so much interested in the truth, not so much interested in reality, as he is in creating his own little world, a dream world, a world where men and women are not inconvenienced are not imposed upon by the demands of truth. Well, the theme, more appropriately, for this week's section of the convention, this week's session of the convention, is one world, one hope. One world, one hope. And if we're not careful, we might think that that's a, a mere play on words. It's just a sleight of hand, as though dream and hope are, are the same thing. And yet they are worlds apart. The difference between a dream and a hope is as wide as the Atlantic Ocean. The difference between a dream and a hope is that hope is girded with steel. The steel of God's promises and God's will. So tonight we want to meditate a bit on that theme. One world, yes, but, but one hope, not one dream, not one fantasy, one, not, not one escape from reality, a, a sort of collective delusion. But we want to peer, we want to look, we want to stare hard at God's truth. And we want to stare at the promises of God wherein our hope is rooted to do that, we want to consider one of the earliest missionary passages in the scripture, one of the earliest calls to missions in the Bible. We could begin this in a number of places, but I want to encourage you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. We'll consider tonight verses 1 to 3. It's a very well-known passage. wherein God establishes his promises 
not just to one man or to one nation, but to the entire world. Just a little bit of context before we, we look at these first three verses. You will know your Bibles well. Genesis 1 and 2 is the account of God's creation, the creation of the world. We see there not only the hanging of the stars and the, the formation of the earth and the heavens, but, but also our first parents, Adam and Eve, created in the garden. And in Genesis 3, something terrible, terrible, terrible happens. The world which God made as good is deeply corrupted. Not by God, but by man who rebels against the rule of God. You see, the world we live in right now is not the world as God made it. It is a deeply flawed world. It is not as God has designed it. It is how we have redesigned it by our rebellion against God. And that's the story of Genesis 3. And the story from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation chapter 20 is in one sense the account of man's continuing sin against God. That's one half of the story. But it's also the account, Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, of God becoming, as it were, the first and the greatest of missionaries, seeking for himself a people whom he would redeem from their sin and make for himself a treasure. You know, there are only four chapters in the Bible where man's sin doesn't figure prominently. Genesis 1 and 2 in the garden, and Revelation 21 and 22 in the new Jerusalem, the new city made by God. Well, in Genesis 11, we come to the account of the Tower of Babel where God confuses the language of people because in their pride, they've come to trust in their ingenuity and to exalt themselves against God. What we see is the rise of alienation between men and women as Cain um, killed his brother Abel. And by the time we get to Genesis 11, God confounding the, the languages and, 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 as it were, alienating further men because of their sin and their pride. You know, I think the theme song in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel was probably one world, one dream. Where man collectively agreed together that they would fashion a world where they ruled in a world where they were greater than God. So we zoom down from the events of Genesis chapter 11. We come now to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 to 25 focuses on the patriarch, Abraham. It's the beginning of God's promise of salvation. It's also the beginning of a long, agonizing period between the receipt of that promise and its ultimate fulfillment. And that's one way we can organize and understand our entire Bibles, really. The Old Testament, we might think of as promise, and the New Testament as fulfillment. And we see again from the beginnings that there is really only one world and one hope. That is God's aim and mission. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country your people and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Well, what we want to consider really are these first three verses. These first three verses, which are, as it were, the text for our theme this evening. And in verse 1, what we see is the Lord's command, his call to Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. That command, that call, really has two parts. There's a leaving and a going. And we see there the leaving, leave your country your people, your father's house. He's leaving things that are increasingly intimate and dear to him. Not only a country vaguely, which we we all love, and not just his people, his sort of clan or ethnic group, but indeed his father's home. Indeed, the very place where he had been suckled and the very place where he had been encouraged and shaped as a man. He was leaving all that was dear. It's a complete call. And we see the Lord calling Abraham not only to leave, but to go, to go to a land that I will show you. So Abram here is sent to an unspecified destination on nothing but the promise of God, that God would show him where he was to go. And it's interesting. If you look back just at the end of chapter 11 there, verses 27 and on, Abraham is coming from a pagan land. He's coming from a people who do not know God. And we assume he is the first one among Terah's household, the first one out of Ur to whom God has spoken. So you see something of the greatness of the faith and the trust of this man, having heard the call of God, a God who was unknown to his people. Abram heeds the call. He leaves comfort and security and embraces the uncertainties of this journey. Note now, when the Lord speaks, he doesn't speak like a beggar asking for change. It's the bellow of a king. It's the booming of proclamation. It's an irresistible and an overpowering and and an overwhelming call. Abram, go speaks to Abram in such a compelling way that Abram picks up sticks and forsakes all. Now this may seem like a very hard call for Abram. This may seem like God is asking a great deal, perhaps perhaps too much of Abram, until we compare God's call and command to Abram with what God himself pledges. Indeed, God pledges himself to Abram. In this call. 
there's one command given to Abram. Laid beside a pile of seven promises that God makes himself in these seven I will statements. You see there in verses 2 and 3. And these are very personal promises, very very much God offering, as I said, himself in this repetition of I will, I will, I will, I will. God keeps saying to Abram. And Abraham's or Abram's entire future, as we shall see the future of all humanity, rests upon Yahweh's personal, sovereign control of all history and his good promises to Abram. See there those promises in verses 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation. This surely seemed like a grand promise. I mean, Abraham is this wandering, childless herdsman. You know his life well. He was married to a, a barren woman. And God is yet promising this man that through him, he would not just give him a family or even a big family, he would make him a nation. It would have seemed difficult to man, but nothing is impossible with God. God promises to transform a pagan unbeliever, a Gentile, into a new people. Just as he had created the heavens and the earth, ex nihilo, out of nothing with but a word, so now he creates a new people by his word calling out of the Gentile masses a Hebrew nation. The second promise is, I will bless you. Here's the promise of divine favor. The promises to Abraham can be really summed up by this one word, blessing. God is proving himself generous to Abraham. He's proving himself kind and lavish He's promising him good. There's nothing special about Abram that causes God to take notice. There's nothing that demands in Abram such blessing. God freely chooses to show this favor. And this promise of blessing runs really throughout the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible stands, as it were, on this text. And see now the next promise that God makes. He says, I will make your name great. Again, in Genesis 11, that's what, the, that's what the people were after, a great name for themselves and the construction of the, of the Tower of Babel. But you know, great names are not self-made. They're God-given. Here, God promised Abram what man in his pride thought he could do through his own ingenuity. And in this promise to make Abram's name great, we get the first glimmer, really, of, of God reversing the confusion that he himself had provoked at Babel. It's going to make Abram a great name. And then next, see here, God promises that at the end of verse 2, you will be a blessing. This is actually a command. It's an imperative. Be a blessing. It's tied with the original command to leave and go. The result of Abraham's leaving and going is that Abraham is now to be a blessing to the other nations. Now, this is a crucial statement. The blessings are not to be turned in upon Abram. 
He's going to be a great nation, yes. He's going to have a great name, yes. But Abram must be more than a recipient. He must also be the channel. He must also be the pipe through which the blessings of God flow over on the banks of all of humanity. He's both a receptacle for the divine blessing and a transmitter of that blessing to others. And so we see God say in verse 3, bless those who bless you. The favor of God that Abram receives is transferred particularly to those who, like God, bless Abram. The people that find Abram commendable, worthy of assistance and care, are the people that God will bless. This is, in part, how Abram will be a blessing to others and how his name will be great. But notice the contrast. But whoever curses you, I will curse. What startling words. What striking words. That there will be people not blessed of God, but cursed of God. Divine malediction. And finally, we're told all peoples will be blessed through you. This is God's programmatic statement. This is his missionary plan in its genesis. Sinister nations and peoples of the earth, such as we read about in in Genesis chapter 3 to 11, are to be blessed through Abram or Abraham. Right here is the beginning of the one and only hope of the entire world. Here's God's announcement of his mission to redeem for himself a people from every tribe and every nation. That, that fourth statement there, you will, you will be a blessing, is clarified finally in the last part of verse 3, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. The Lord has an agenda in selecting Abram. It's not merely for Abram's good that he chooses Abram. It is for the good of all the nations, all the families, all the clans, all the ethnic groups of the world. God takes one Gentile from Mesopotamia and turns him into a Jewish nation. Then through that one man and that one nation blesses the entire earth. And the remainder of the Bible is really the unfolding of that program. And what I want to argue for us tonight is that the remainder of our lives are to be the unfolding of that program. If this is God's agenda, how can it not be ours? If this is God's missionary purpose, if this is what he has set out to do, then how can those of us who are known by his name not live as though it is our singular purpose as well? If this world is to come to know the hope of God, It seems God has chosen that the world will do so through his people. Historically, these promises are fulfilled in the the beginning of Israel as as a separate ethnic people and nation. Abraham is told in chapter 12, verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. 
The historical fulfillment is something that Abram himself will not see in his lifetime. He won't live to see the people take the land. About three generations later, near the end of Genesis, a family of 70 persons entered Egypt to escape famine and receive protection, the protection of Joseph. But by the beginning of the Exodus, that family, the Bible says, was fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them, Exodus 1-7. And indeed, they did take the land and become a great nation, but this, this, excuse me, historical fulfillment is only a partial fulfillment of God's promises to Abram and his descendants in Genesis 12. There is still a more permanent place, a more enduring home, than that patch of real estate in the Middle East. That's really the point of God's call to Abram in Genesis 12.1. The Lord is beginning to move Abram from one home to a better home. This is how the writer in Hebrews understands Genesis 12.1. In Hebrews, the writer writes there that Abram was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Abraham had a better home. He was looking for the city of God. And that's the home that really is home. If we are Christ, we are pilgrims in this life. We are sojourners. We are passing through this land. We don't don't put down deep, deep, deep foundations. We don't pour foundations as though we are resident here. We're given a better citizenship. We're given a better home. Our home awaits us, like Abraham, in glory. He was looking for the city of God. The faint reflection, the faint remembrance of the aroma of his father's house, perhaps the the smell of tea wafting through the tents, the sound of his mother's voice, the, the banter with his brother, All of those things were but dim echoes to a new brotherhood and a new home and a new father who is God and the sweet aroma of heaven. Finding our way to that home is what life is all about. And it requires our attaching our affections there, preparing for that place while in this place. And for many of us, the joy of leaving country and nation and people and our mother and our father's home for the unspeakable privilege of bearing the gospel to a land where people do not know God. The New Testament apostles tell us that God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, ultimately is fulfilled for both Jew and Gentile. That's another way of saying the one world. God's promises for Jew and Gentile are fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Peter, in Acts chapter 3, he quotes Genesis 3 when speaking with the Jewish audience and, and reminding them, insisting before them, that Christ Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Messiah whom they had crucified. 
that Christ was their one hope. And the Apostle Paul wrote to Gentile nations in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Looking back to this very verse, these very promises of God, and says a rather astounding thing. He looks back to Genesis 12, verse 3, and he says, The scripture foresaw. In other words, what's happening in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, is the scripture, the Bible, God's word itself, is looking forward. The scripture foresaw that God would justify, declare righteous, the Gentiles, all the nations, by faith and announced beforehand, announced the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. This is remarkable. Centuries upon centuries before Jesus took upon himself human flesh and trod this earth, God made an announcement. He put an announcement in the church bulletin. He said, listen, in this promise to bless the nations is the gospel, the good news of my dear son, through whom all the nations will be declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. So Peter quotes this passage to the Jews. Paul quotes it to the Gentiles. You see what this means, don't you? There is only one world, and it has only one hope. The good news, the gospel of our dear Savior. And so we see that God has only one plan of redemption for men. It lies not in Olympics and the temporary high of winning a race. You know, we, we watch the Olympics and we celebrate with our athletes and our countries, and, and yet how temporary, how transient a joy that must be. Call me lazy, but I, I just, I'm just not really interested in working out four years to run a 15-second race. Probably explains my waistline. <laughs> but how temporary and fading that glory. What do those persons do when the applause is over? What hope do they have when, when the medal is not not being applauded by thousands upon thousands of crowds of, of people, but, but is simply hung above a mantle place. That aluminum, that gold, that copper, whatever it's made of, it doesn't clap. It doesn't fulfill. What do they do when the crowds are gone? There's no hope in that. There's no hope in anything this world offers our hope comes from another world. Our hope comes by the gospel. My non-Christian friend, perhaps you're here and you've not given much thought to the gospel. You've not given much thought to why it is Christians go on and on about this strange word, gospel. Or perhaps you're a little bit curious about why Young people, promising people with promising careers and, and otherwise their entire lives ahead of them. Why it is they would, they would leave their families and leave their homes and, 
and give themselves in some strange land among people who, who quite frankly, may be hostile to what they believe. Perhaps that befuddles you. Well, this term gospel is a word that literally means good news. And like all other news, the gospel features certain events and certain persons in history. We're talking about actual events. We're talking about actual places. But unlike all other news, the gospel makes eternal demands on us all. It requires of you and me and everyone a response. The good news or gospel, which, which our missionary friends who are gathered with us this week have, have committed themselves to, is that God made man in his very own image. And he made man to enjoy him, God, forever. Mankind is intended to find supreme satisfaction in God. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 17, verse 15 says, I, when I awake in my righteousness, I will behold you and be satisfied. We're meant to be satisfied in God and God alone and in God above all other things. But man, you and I, all of us, this is true of everyone who's ever lived. Because of our great sin against God has broken fellowship with him. And we have cut ourselves off from that satisfaction. We have cut ourselves off from the one enduring source of joy. And beloved, my non-Christian friend, that is a very dangerous place to be. It is a profoundly dangerous place to be. For this loving God who made us to fellowship with him is also a holy God. He is a just God. He is a righteous God. And there is nothing in him that will wink at sin. There is nothing in him that will turn a blind eye to your rebellion and mine. Because he is holy, because he is just, because he does all things well, he will, in the end, call men to account for their sin. And if we were to die in our sin, my non-Christian friend, if you were to die in your sin, there would be no hope for you, only judgment, a sobering, and awful, and eternal, and you would have to confess a right judgment because of your sins. Now here's where the gospel becomes good news. Here's where there is hope. Because of his great love for us, God sent his one and only son into the world. This is a story perhaps you have heard a thousand times before. Listen afresh. God has intervened in the world. He's broken into time and history. He's not shut outside the dance. He's come in. His son, Jesus, took upon himself our nature. He lived a perfectly righteous life. Why did he do that? He did that to satisfy the Father, the Father's sense of righteousness. 
And not only did he live a perfectly righteous life, he, he went further. He went much further. He took upon himself our sins. And in doing so, he took our place in God's judgment. So that the wrath of God, the anger of God, the righteous and the holy judgment of God against sin is finally satisfied. And the good news is, is if, if we turn from our sins and turn to believe in Christ, it's satisfied not on us, for we could not bear it, but on Christ. It's satisfied on the Son of God, who's, who alone has shoulders broad enough to bear the sins of the entire world. This is why this is good news. We may be free from our sin. We may be free from guilt. We may be free from the judgment of God because Christ took the whipping, took the nails, bore the wrath, and died in the place of sinners. And we know the Father accepts that sacrifice because three days later, he rose again from the grave. The Father is pleased with his Son. And all those who are in Christ, who believe on him, the Father is pleased with them because of Christ. That's the good news, my non-Christian friend. You may walk from this place free from sin, free from the guilt of sin, adopted into the family of God, and loved in an unimaginable way. Loved by God. That's the gospel. And it demands that you respond, that you turn from your sins and trust solely in Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Son of God. Well, perhaps you're here and you're a Christian. Maybe you're here and you're a missionary. You're already serving on the mission field. Well, this gospel message is the very message that you have, you have trusted for your own salvation, your, your own rescue from the penalty of sin and death, and for your eternal happiness with God. And this is the message you are committing to spread with the rest of your life. You have become a steward of the mysteries of God. And of this, this stewardship, one thing is required of you, Faithfulness. You're leaving mother and father and country, sisters and brothers, is but the next step in the fulfillment of the Savior's plan, his promise to glorify you together with himself, to give you a hundred times all that you've left in your kingdom. If you're here and you're a missionary, you will no doubt at times be faced with frustration. Perhaps loneliness, homesickness, concern for your family and friends back home. That's natural. But can I offer you an encouragement tonight? Set your eyes more fully on that Zion that is to come. The new Jerusalem. Set your eyes on that home with Jesus that has already been purchased for you and is coming sooner than we all know. Be faithful with the gospel. Tell the people 
They will perish in their sins and be eternally lost unless we tell the people and God gives them life. Tell the people. They will cling to idols and false religion unless we share the good news of Jesus Christ, a true and living God. Tell the people. And all that you're called to do in whatever country the Lord calls you to do it in, nothing is more important than that you should tell the people the news. News is meant for sharing. Give it away liberally. Give it away cheerfully. Give it away aggressively. Tell the people, do not be safe. Do not seek security. Forsake this life. For people every day die apart from Christ and their souls begin to know eternal agony. Tell the people you have nothing in this life worth preserving that is of greater value than the life that you are going to. An inheritance incorruptible and undefiled reserved for you in heaven by the power of God. If you die, you only begin to live. This is what it is to have eternal life. There is no risk to us. This message, though it be dangerous in this life, finally cannot touch us. Because Christ has made us his own. And no one shall pluck us from the Father's hand. Tell the people, do not grow weary in spreading the good news. Adonai Judson buried two wives and several children on foreign soil. He lost his health and at times nearly lost his mind. He was imprisoned and tortured. He labored faithfully for the salvation of the Burmese people. It took Adoniram Judson and his team nearly seven years before they saw their first convert to Jesus Christ. And even then, one of the first three converts would fall away and Judson would record his doubts about the other. After nine years, 18 Burmese people had come to faith in Christ. Nine years, 18 people. 21 years into the mission, there were 373 who had been baptized in profession of their faith in Christ. 217 of those, over two-thirds, had come in 1831 alone. In 1832, another 129 would be added to the roles of glory and inner eternal life. By 1840, Judson had translated the entire Bible into the Burmese language and laid the foundation for generations of missionary efforts to that people. How many millions will now surround the throne of glory, bowing to the name that is above every other name because of the faithful effort of Judson's. Be faithful. Tell the people and trust the Lord with the results. We possess the word of life, the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, the Lamb of God slain for the guilty who may be cleansed and saved from the wrath of God to come. Let us not be clever or eloquent, or wise in our own way. 
but bold, courageous, and play the man for our Lord, proclaiming the gospel to every creature and watching the Father keep his promise. Deliver on all of those I wills in verses 2 and 3. Trust the power of God in the word. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. This message is a power. This message is a capsule containing an explosion. Tell the people. Release the gospel. And watch God bring to himself glory. My missionary friend, you have nothing to offer of greater value than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have no greater happiness awaiting you than to hear the Father on that day say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into thy rest. Labor in such a way as to hear the Master say, Well done. In churches of Northern Ireland, I hope that this passage builds your trust and confidence in God. See the goodness of God and his power to fulfill his purposes. You realize that if you're a Christian here, you are, as it were, in the family of Abraham. The very promise spoken to Abraham all those many hundreds and thousands of years ago, in a land quite foreign to us, those promises, as it were, have been passed along from believer to believer until Christ comes and birthed the church. And Christ promises that the gates of hell should not prevail against his church. And what has been happening for 2,000 years since Christ? The spread of the church. People coming into the faith. You realize that you are living evidence of God's willingness, indeed his intent, to keep his own promises. You are, if you are a Christian, a fulfillment of Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now what shall we do with so rich an inheritance? How now shall we live? We stand here participating in the promise of God to Abram to bless all nations. Think of that. The gospel was not meant to be preached until it reached me or you and then bottled or canned like some jams or jellies until we want a trifle or as you would say, a wee bit. The gospel was meant to be given liberally, freely, to flow through us just as the promises to Abram were meant to flow through him. So now, will we stop with the missionaries we already know? Will we rest on our laurels? Will we be people of little faith or will we pray and ask God for more, far more, How many more missionaries can we believe God for? How many more missionaries can we support? How much more can we give knowing that all that we have we have first received from God? How many more nations can we trust God to impact by our churches? How many of you, like Abram, you hear the sovereign Lord calling you to leave and go? Will you go? Will you forsake this life and purchase for yourself a greater reward in the life to come? 
how many more of us will trust the promises of God, so radically trust the promises of God as to forsake kindred and comfort to willingly enter dangerous places so that men and women who perish in darkness might enter into the life we have already freely received. How many of us will rejoice at the privilege, listen, of introducing God to someone? God. We know him. We love him. Because he first loved us. And it is our privilege and our joy to give the world this one hope. Let's pray together. Lord, we do not know how to pray as we ought. But we do rejoice that you are our great high priest who intercedes for us. And Holy Spirit, we do praise you that you too intercede on our behalf. We ask but one thing, that you would be glorified among the nations. That you would be loved and praised. And that you would draw to yourself a great multitude in this generation you would bring to yourself fame and glory through the spread of the gospel of your dear son. Do this, we pray, for your praise and for our eternal happiness. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.